Welcome to the next episode of Talk Racing to Me with Naomi. The man, the myth, the legend. Okay, not so much of a myth. We all know him. Jonathan Kinchin joined me for good old catch-up earlier this week. This time, it was a deep dive into his life. What did he do before he got into horse racing? Hint, he was part of another sport. How do you create positive change? What does JK get up to in Saratoga and how does it work if you want to become a pro horse player? Also, he talks about his tats, which horses are included, which numbers and what they mean to him and the story behind them. In addition, JK drops a bit of a bombshell. His famous fashion sense is going to become accessible via a special collaboration with Alt Smoke Clothing. Stay tuned for all that and of course so much more. And before we begin, thank you for joining me once again. It's been such a fun ride and it's only getting better. JK, you are back on the Talk Racing to Me airways and for the regular listeners of In The Money Media team, I mean, there are so many podcasts we have right now. They hear you very often via your JK Plus One podcast, as well as the award-winning player show right now. I mean, uh, reflect a little bit on that award-winning In The Money Player Show. How does that feel? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, to be honest, I think we kind of, Pete and I both kind of look at it as like a, is like kind of a network wide thing. Like I think that, that, that obviously that's the flagship show and that was the show that it kind of all started with. But, you know, I think that, that a lot of the attention that the network has gotten is just because of all the other things we have going on. And, and that was kind of the, the, the idea with the network was to give, give everyone something to listen to. And, and it's continued to grow, right? It's like, we want the consigners, the salespeople, the breeders to have something to listen to. And, Although a lot of them do listen to us talk about who we like on the weekends and breaking down races, and I think some of the information that Acacia is giving on in the ring can be can be more useful. And then the hardcore player um, can listen to our show or Matt's show. The new players that are wanting to learn or continue to grow their game can listen to Spencer's. And uh, a little bit of everyone who wants to kind of just have the news and the current events of what's going on. You know, I, I kind of think of your show as more of like the 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 longer form version of what Steve Vick does to kind of just kind of report on what's going on and to stay current with what's going on. And then JK plus one. And so I think it's more of like a network thing, but no, I mean, we're obviously really proud um, of, of that recognition for a network that we started and, and um, it's cool. You know, we were, we got a, you know, had a million downloads last year on the network um, actually a little bit more than that, like 1.1. And, and we're proud of that for racing, especially it's, you know, obviously it's not barstool sports, but it's uh, for horse racing. We're really proud of those numbers. Should we be talking to Dave Portnoy? <laughs> <laughs> Get uh, <a> plug. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. It's a, da- it's a dangerous conversation to have. Yeah, no, sure. Sure. No, I, in what you've guys done building up the in the money media brand has been absolutely phenomenal, especially if you look at people starting podcasts, there are so many that are getting started all the time yet in the money has this you know whole sort of umbrella as you mentioned in terms of 
you can go anywhere, whatever is your, your kind of what you're looking for, you guys have it. And I think that's really, really strong, especially here in the US. It seems like, you know, in the money media is the go to for the majority of content, depending, you know, what's going on at track. Is there, you know, um, guaranteed payout, things like that. You guys are always on top of it. So obviously I wanted to, well, maybe not obviously, I wanted to get you back because I had you on before. But we just talked about, you know, the BCBC and and a little bit about your broadcasting career. But I wanted to dive a bit deeper, sort of a JK plus one, but then turning the tables back on you. Because how well does everyone listening to the network really know you? They obviously know your, you know, your fun side and your strong handicapping skills, as well as your quite articulate opinion on industry uh, issues, which I always love listening to. But I want to the people to maybe see a little bit of a different side to you as well. So let's start maybe at the beginning or sort of the beginning, because in my mind, I was thinking you are a professional horse player, but how does one become a professional horse player? When do you start placing larger bets? And when do you transition into classifying yourself as getting those rebates or getting the right kind of information? Well, I mean, I, I always try to, you know, look, I, I think what Paul Matisse, Duke Matisse, Mike Maloney, Sean Borman, um, and a handful of others do as professionals, meaning that they put food on the table, they pay their insurance, they put their, you know, their, their kids college, all that stuff they're paying for with gambling. To me, that's a professional. I, I like to consider myself more of a semi-professional because I have other income in other areas. I've got a real estate business. We have the TV stuff. We have the podcast stuff. So, but the professional horse player thing, and I felt comfortable at least, at least acknowledging that that's at least partially right is in 2015, I had to start filing taxes that way because um, when I won the tour, it just, it just, you have to do it that way. You have to be able to offset some of that 1099 money. So you have to kind of establish it as a business, so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, the, the way that transition happened for me was, it was really pretty simple. It was like living in Texas. Um, just like many of our listeners, I was just a guy who was, uh, you know, uh, a $500 ATM guy, a $300 ATM guy, play the races for the day, whatever. And it got to the point where, uh, I, they ADW stopped being allowed in Texas. So I lost my twin spires account and I either had to drive down to San Antonio, which took an hour to Rotama park. So I would, I would handicap in the morning and I would drive down there and I'd put in a $200 pick five in the late pick five at, 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 at Belmont. And then I'd put a $200 pick five at Churchill or whatever. And then I'd drive home and I'd watch it. And if I got a big score, I'd go pick it up Sunday or whatever and it just got to be kind of tedious to be able to kind of get that action and to get involved. And I started playing in, in contests, the BCBC qualifiers, the NHC qualifiers, qualified for the BCBC, qualified for the NHC in the first, you know, three months that I was playing. And, and then I started playing in the contest. And then um, my first NHC, I had those, those two entries make it to the final table. And so I won like $75,000. So now I suddenly have a lot more money to play. 84000 I have a lot more money to play with. Um, I'm able to kind of take my lumps and learn more along the way. And and then also with that whole situation is DRF and, and really Ken Kirkner and Mandy Minger 
Um, Ken Kirkner was was in, kind of in charge of NHC Qualify. Mandy Minger was at DRF. They kind of reached out to me for like a kind of like a spokesman role. And I was thrilled. And to be completely straightforward, I mean, I think I got like I got like $2,500 for the whole year. And I was just like a spokesman where they would like use my picture and like, and like whatever. And I didn't, yeah. now, and I got a free formulator account, which is not, not worth which anything. Which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was thrilled. I was like, this is awesome. I don't have to pay, you know, I don't have to have those nine ninety five charges on my account all the time for buying formulator here, formulator there. And that's when I started because of that role, I started jumping on the players podcast when it was at DRF. And then really that just snowballed into what it is now. And then in 2015, um, Oh, the other part of my compensation was I got like $500 or a thousand dollars in site credit to NHC qualify or something. So I was playing in those events and I won one. And so then I had to chase the tour cause I was in such good position to do so. And that's how it all turned into what it is now to a certain extent. So that's kind of how the professional thing started. I just, you know, started betting more, started making more, started doing more. And next thing you know, it, it's, you know, here we are. That's super interesting. That's also in a way intertwined with how in the money media came about. Getting back to the tax part, though, I do believe we've had a conversation about this before when I was asking you how that works. Are you like a freelancer or how do you classify betting income? Yeah, it's confusing. Like my, my tax dudes like buy the book, too. So like there's no... <laughs> There's no like gray area with him. <laughs> um, essentially like, you know, there's, well, it changed a lot when the NTRA did that uh, remarkable job of basically changing the way the tax code interprets gambling winnings, W2Gs and issues W2Gs. And what happened back in the day is that if you were to score, if you were to hit a bet, with 600 to one odds or higher, then they would give you a W2G and they would report that income to the government. And so anyone in the world or anyone who's just a, just a, you know, a car salesman, a insurance guy, if you get a W2G, you can claim your losses up to your winnings. So if the W2G is for $1,200, but you lost $25,000, betting, you can only claim losses up to your winnings. So you can essentially cancel out that 1200 bucks. But when you're a professional and you have a business where you have, you know, laptop, office space, internet, you're paying for this, you're paying for that. You could also write off losses and it gets pretty complicated. Um, but you know, so essentially like you just, you know, you can just be set up as a business where, you can write off a laptop. You can write off your internet. You can write off the square footage of your home office. You can write off buying a new desk. You can write off, um, you know, some travel expenses for a contest. There's a lot of things you can do. And it's just, you know, so that's, that was kind of the path that you have to go down. Otherwise it, it can be a little bit tricky, but once that W2G rule changed, it kind of changed the way things were because essentially the government doesn't get reported about what you're winning anymore because W2Gs don't happen anymore because they changed that rule that it's not 600 times the base bet, right? So it's a 50 cent pick five, mm -hmm. anything that paid, you know, whatever, 300 bucks or more, over that. Easily yeah. over. But now what they do is it's 600 times the cost of the ticket. 
So if you do a 50 cent pick five that costs $144, 144 times 600 to one is completely different than that 50 cent thing. So that's where it was changed. And so W2Gs just don't really happen anymore. That's very interesting about being able to make it a viable business prospect and allowing people to write off their losses because otherwise how how would you make money as a professional horse player so that's certainly for anyone interested in that i guess they'd have to of course get an accountant to help you with all of that yeah, as well because it seems CPA. complex oh it's it's yeah it's super confusing it's different in different states it's yeah there's um if you really are considering doing it, you know, the, I, you know, some of the, some of the professional guys I know, their CPAs obviously have been doing it for a long time and understand it. So, um, it is complex, but if it's a, if it's a, a business you want to go down, it, it is, it is one that can, that is, you know, it's feasible. And get in touch with JK for, for a good accountant, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so when it comes to, we've just sort of outlined what what you see as qualifying as a pro player. And you were saying you were learning from the contest and from basically doing things, but are there specific tools that you felt have helped you significantly along the way? You were talking about DRF formulator. I know that you have your own um, type of PPs as well. Can you kind of explain what would be involved in those? And I'm assuming it's hard for sort of your regular Joe to, to create those. Yeah. I mean, look, it's just, I, I think the biggest thing is, is that you have to find an edge in this game. If you're going to play it at this high level, you, you have to find an edge. And, you know, we talk often and, and, and I, you know, I talked with Joe Applebaum last week on, on JK plus one about the computer automatic wagering. And I'm not a hater of CAWs. I have no problem with what they're, they're doing. I have no problem with the smarter guy in the room doing better. And what, and, and frankly, what they're doing is smarter when, what, than what the rest of us are doing. So I, I can't be mad at them for that. I think the problem is, for me, is that the efficiency in which they're able to bet with is the, the game and the industry should understand the importance of providing those tools for the little guy. Because the CAWs can afford to create programs and systems and betting mechanisms that can help them be the smarter, smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. the, the average player can't afford to build those things on their own. And I think it's the industry's responsibility to give the average player a chance because eventually the CAWs are going to run out all the average players and then the CAWs are going to be playing against themselves and that whole dream of getting people to come to the racetrack it kind of goes to the wayside. So for me, it's, it's, it's more about the wagering tool than it is anything else. It's more about how are you betting? How are you betting efficiently? It's significantly more important to me than, than, you know, who's going to win the seventh, uh, who's going to win the seventh is extremely overrated. How are you going to bet the seventh? How are you going to leverage your opinion in the seventh is where the answer is. And, and what I think is the differentiator when it comes to like the average player and the successful player. So when it comes to those tools that are developed by people that have uh, more resources available to them, do you feel like they should offer them to the market at, let's say a price so people, if they want to, could buy into it? No, no, not at all. I mean, no, if I have an edge, I don't need to invite you into my edge. If I've, it's, it, you know, I'm a, it's America and, and, and capitalistic mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Uh, I don't believe that I need to share what it is I built, but I yeah. do believe that the industry 
is doing themselves a disservice by not taking their resources and helping the better, helping the average better. The guy who cashes his check at the end of the week for $724 and brings the $124 to the racetrack to play on a Friday, give him a chance to, to win because the way that it is right now, that guy doesn't have a chance to win in the long run. He's just not going to win going to the track and betting exact the boxes and trying to play a $48 pick four. when he, when he does hit the pick four, he's going to get paid significantly less than he should because he bet it inefficiently and the computers are betting it efficiently. They're taking all the meat off the bone and that's their right. And I don't fault them for that, but that's why we stress, you know, books like Steve Chris exotic betting, where it teaches you how to bet better. It's not the answer. You're still not going to, you're still bringing a knife to a gunfight, but at least you're bringing a knife the other way. And the way that most people are doing it, they're not bringing a weapon to a gunfight. And, and that's, that's the, that's the problem. So we try to, you know, we try to highlight that as much as we can about being better wagers and being a more efficient wager and using the tools that are available and constructing your bets not not in the 28 seconds it takes you to get up from your table and walk to the window but to spend as much time as you do quote unquote handicapping you know building tickets and stuff like that so this this goes so much deeper this is more looking at the, the regular player than for example uh, giving someone that's new to the races free pps right yeah i mean I, I mean obviously i think that's important as well right it's like you know we want to we want new players to come to the game and we want it to be a positive experience for them. Um, the chances are they're gonna lose at the beginning when they first get there. Yeah. And then we're gonna charge them nine ninety five for information that's gonna give them a chance to win. It just I, I feel like, you know, if you wanna bet if you wanna bet a college basketball game today, there's there's infinite amounts of information that are available. I can tell you what uh Duke averages per game and what their effective field goal percentage is and you know how, how what their percentage of offensive rebounds is and so on and so there's so many things you can look up but if you want free information about racing you're not going to get anything outside of the horse's name the pedigree the trainer and who's riding everything yeah. else outside of that is either going to be a heck of a lot of clicks or mm -hmm. you're going to have to pay for it and and i i think that i think that that's problematic to a certain extent let's let's provide that basic information for free people will still pay for the premium stuff people will still pay for the formulators the stats race lenses the time form us's the workout reports they're going to pay for that stuff but the yeah. basic past performances in my opinion should be provided for free i wholeheartedly agree with you on that one especially i, I have a lot of friends and family that are not in racing and you're trying to set them up and get them interesting what i'm doing is i'm giving them my stuff which I can get because obviously I handicap on a daily basis. So I, we, I have all that, but they don't. And for them to then start paying for that doesn't make sense when they don't even know what they're looking at or what is going on in the first place. But getting back to what, what you were saying about, let's say college basketball, why did you go into horse racing and go semi-professional as a player in that? Why not uh, NFL, baseball, any other sport that does have perhaps better resources available? Yeah. Well, so I think there's a couple of reasons why. Um, one of them is um, I fell in love with the game of horse racing, right? I love the puzzle of trying to 
see what's going to happen and be creative and designing the race. And I love the four legged athlete. Um, I love the two legged athlete. I, I think they're really interesting humans to be so small and stature, but to be so strong and, and powerful and, and, uh, the risk that they take. I love the colors, the pageantry, the history. Uh, I like that. It's, it's a game that's played outside. I like that. It's a game that, that, that there's, there's a sense of like a fashion to it. Um, it's, it, there's nothing better than a day at the track with, 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 you know, drinks and food and hanging out. So like the, the game itself I fell in love with. And so there's a lot of different gam and then gambling. I just, I like the idea of, of I'm smarter than you not saying that I am, but I like the idea of playing that game. I like my brain versus yours, which is one of the reasons I loved football, coaching football. I'm smarter than you. I'm on offense calling plays against your defense. I'm smarter than you. That's why I liked it when I played, you know, video games growing up and in college. Like, I'm better at Madden than you are. I'm very competitive. So I... I just chose racing because I loved racing. No, don't get me wrong. In college, the f- I was betting sports and trying to figure out sports. But to answer your question, what's the difference is to me, sports is a game. When you're betting sports, it is a grind. There's no real opportunities for big scores betting little amounts of money. Unless you're doing crazy like, you know, 10 team parlays, but we all know how often that happens. And the other thing is about sports is the way that sports are designed with sport with, with spreads and lines is that often you're, you're not aligned with the intent of the team. So if I have the Patriots minus four and a half, meaning that they, if they win by three, I lose. If they win by five, I win. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady don't give a damn about my minus four. They care about <laughs> winning the game. And so I find it frustrating sometimes to like be right, but be wrong. And Mm. it's a grind and I don't like the grind. And plus by nature, I'm not the type of guy that has the type of discipline that can just wake up and do the same thing over and over and just pick up little pennies along the way. And so that's why I gravitated towards racing just because I think it's a better betting opportunity. It's a paramutual game. You're playing against others rather than playing against the house um, and there's opportunities for big scores if you can be right, right, right. So you wouldn't enjoy um, betting against the bookies then in Europe because you're playing against the house? In a way. I mean, small house. Depends where you are. Depends who you're betting with. No, I, I want the opportunity to do that. You know, I want the opportunity to to, to be able to attack a fixed odd situation. Um, but I think that the game is healthier if if the if the majority of the of the handle goes through a paramutual model. Um, I do think that, you know, I talked about this with Aiden Butler when I did JK plus one is like, I do think that there's an opportunity for fixed odds wagering on things that don't already exist that you can wager on. I would love to to bet like, you know, uh, and I did it a couple summers ago in Vegas. They used to have this where I bet, I don't, I'm going to mess this up exactly, but I believe I bet Louis Saez, Manny Franco, and, uh, maybe Johnny, and and Javier versus the the Ortiz brothers, like who is going to have the most wins at Saratoga for the summer? Um, like stuff like that, I think is really fun and exciting. It can get new players involved. So I, I'm not against it in that regard as an option, but 
I think playing the fixed odds market just to win on a consistent basis wouldn't be nearly as much fun as the parimutuel game we get to play now. Interesting. Yeah, actually, this is a, a conversation. I was chatting with uh, Pete Rotano Jr. and Acacia in a chat about, and then I think you tweeted it as well, that you can bet on the length of the national anthem before the Super Bowl. But then the guy tweeted out the length and it was all gone. But <laughs> we, were, we were talking about that. You have the opportunity to bet on these things that are different or interesting. And then Acacia mentioned that at Royal Ascot, you can bet on the color that the Queen's wearing every day. Now, that's, of course, not something that we would have here, but it's different and it makes it intriguing. And, and it's a little bit of fun, maybe even for people that just want to come in and, and bet something silly. It's about excitement. It's about creating excitement. Um, I've been to a lot of sporting events. I've been to a lot of football games. I've seen a lot of horse races. They are more exciting when you have something at stake. It's just, it is what it is. It, it, it doesn't mean that I can't watch the Travers without a bet. It's just watching the Travers with a bet is more fun. It's more exciting. Um, it gives you more, it gives you more uh, emotion. It makes you feel harder and heavier than you would if you were just watching it as a fan. So, you know, the idea that, 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 you know, the notion that the queen coming out in the horse and carriage prior to ask it starting, that's an exciting moment because it ask it's about to start. You're about to see the queen Anne, you know, race the grade one queen. Anne. this it's about to happen. Yeah. And so to be able to parlay that excitement with now, what is she wearing? Like that, it, it seems silly, but really it's just getting the blood flowing. Um, and you talk about the national anthem and, and I hate that guy who did that, by the way. Uh, yes. um, <laughs> you know, mostly because I do just text your friend, right? Because that wasn't, I mean, mm -hmm. I'll be, just be honest. That was an edge that we've had. It's been fun for the last couple of years, being able to bet the national anthem and, and having an idea of what was going to happen. And that guy ruined it. And now next year, there's going to be a bunch of jack wagons out in front of the stadium doing the exact same thing. And essentially, the wager's ruined forever, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's fun, though. I mean, man, getting your phone out and getting your timer ready and then, you know, boom, and then listening to it. And oh my, like, oh, mother, come on, hurry up, hurry up. You know, it's just like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's fun, you know, because yeah. the national anthem is exciting because obviously we love our country, but it's also the start of the Super Bowl. So there's that excitement that comes with that. And then you parlay it with a wager. It's like you're hooking people um, by letting them have some excitement and some fun and some, some triumph and some disappointment. It just, you know, that's what, that's what life's all about is those ups and downs. And, and, uh, and so, you know, that's why I think it's so much fun. It really, really is. And just getting back to some of the other sports you were talking about, uh, this obviously I know because you told me this before, but you were involved in coaching before really getting into racing. I mean, what were you doing before getting into horse racing? Yeah, um, I'm gonna think. You know, I'm uh, I've never told this like whole story before, so it, it'll be kind of new. Like I, when I was in high school, I was not a great student, right? I just did whatever I wanted. I had fun. I was a class clown. Like I used to try to like. I was the kid who like the other kids could dare me to try to make the substitute cry and quit. And like, then we would all laugh. Like, the, Did you, know, you just, ever? Oh, we had this one. We had like 12, we had like 12 sub. We had like a teacher that was out for like four or five months. And the whole goal of the class was to see how many substitutes we could go through. And we were just, I mean, not like, not like being abusive, just being annoying, you know, just being an annoying kid. 
like what, you know, pushing her to the limit and then apologizing. It's like she hated me, but then she liked, you know, just stupid stuff. So I wasn't a good student, um, you know, like that. I was always capable and I could always kind of get my way, work my way out of it. But um, I, you know, I played football my junior and senior year and I tore my ACL my senior year and I was never like a great player, but I was a contributor to a certain extent. And my coaches who all doubted because of my behavior that I would be a good football player or be able to make it through football were, were very proud of where I came in terms of what they thought. And one guy by the name of Kevin Atkinson, who I'm still close with now, and at least once a year I talk to him and call him and it I, brings me to tears. I mean, we talk, it, it just, I just, he's, my dad was a very, was a very good father, suitable father. It's not like I didn't have one, but coach Atkinson was like my other father. Um, but he kind of pushed me into staying involved after I had blown out my knee and to be kind of a coach to stay involved. And not that I was really coaching, but he made me feel like I was still a part of it. And once I graduated, uh, I was terrible. I mean, I don't, I don't even mind saying this. I was four Oh four out of four twenty four in my graduating class. Like I just didn't do anything. And so I graduated, I went to junior college and I got a like 3.8 GPA and then I transferred to Texas. But while I was at junior college, Coach Atkinson got a job at another school. And I went there three days a week and kind of volunteer coached with kids that didn't know me. And I was young and I fell in love with it then. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to coach high school football. So I went to school at Texas and I, you know, did the whole college experience knowing that once I graduated, I was going to go and I was going to work for Coach Atkinson. And he had always told me that. And you know, I, I believed him, but you know, it's also kind of a long shot. And then man, the day I graduated in January and, um, he called and he said, Hey, like a two weeks later, he's like, cut your hair and get up here tomorrow. And I was like, uh, okay. I had dreadlocks. So I cut my hair and I go up there and he introduces me to the principal and the principal says, yeah, we're going to try to hire you next year. But for this year, if a teacher's out, we'll give you the substitute job. So be a substitute and then you can still go over there after school and coach. And the, I, that's exactly what happened. Pretty much had a substitute job making like a hundred dollars a day, which you're rich right out of college. That's crazy. Um, and I started coaching. I fell in love with it. I did it for seven years, ended up at the largest, uh, you know, school at the largest enrollment in the state of Texas it was very serious football. Um, that high level Texas high school football stuff that you think about. And ultimately I just decided to kind of move away from it because I hated like, I hated the, I didn't enjoy the teaching part of it. Not because I didn't like the kids or the teaching, but because I hated all the dumb rules and the teacher type of stuff you had to do. You know, I just hated all of that. And it's a lot. I mean, we, we've done some work to like, it's like two $2 an hour when you're coaching at that level because you're always there you're never off and you stretch out your salary over how many hours you're actually working. It's like $2 an hour. And I just had an opportunity to start a real estate deal. And so I got away from it, but I think that it kind of helped form me and like to what I am now is like, you know, it, 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 it honed my competitiveness and like really, you know, I was very proud of being a Texas high school football coach and what that meant and signified. And so it gave me a lot of confidence by doing it as well. Um, and, and, and I miss the kids more than anything. I mean, we had fun, man. I, I, you know, I really, they're still one of the kids I coached 
um, when I was there, he ended up going to Texas. And so when I moved back to Austin, he was a college student in Austin and we stayed in contact and he would help us do little things with our real estate company. And we would go to dinner and take him to dinner and we'd go to, you know, go to Texas basketball games with him. We ended up taking him to the Derby with us three times. Like no way, just a great kid. And, and we went to his wedding and, uh, I cried when he called me and told me that he was having a baby. And it's like, it's, it's, it's I miss that. I miss those, I miss those relationships I was able to build with those young men. And, and, uh, that, that was the part that, that, you know, that's the part I miss. Yeah, I bet. That's really intriguing. Cause I, I knew that you had coached, but I didn't know it was for seven years that that's quite a while. And I did wonder why that career path didn't take off for you because as a person, you come across like you would be very good at guiding others and keeping them motivated. So it was intriguing to hear that perhaps some of the rules side wasn't to your liking. Yeah. You say you miss the kids. Do you ever wonder what would have happened if you had continued? Oh yeah. I mean, I was on the fast track, right? Like I, because most in Texas, high school football coaching is obviously a, is a very important thing. A lot of, a lot of men want to be that Like Texas is so important their relationships with their coaches were always so important. And so it's a, it's a job that I think that is put on a pedestal and to a lot, especially in this state. And most coaches have to start at the middle school level, basically babysitting seventh and eighth graders. And then you have to kind of, you know, do all the grunt work on the coaching staff. And it's just like a, not, not a fun experience. I don't think for a lot of people that aspire to do more. I was able to skip that because of my relationship with coach Atkinson. I went straight into the high school and I was a freshman coach for two years. And then I was a varsity coach at the biggest high school in the state of Texas on my third. That never happens. So then the next step would have obviously been to been a coordinator. And then I would have been a very, I would have got a head coaching job at a very young age if I would have stuck with it. So it would have been great and I would have enjoyed it and I wanted to do it, but I just, I got to a point where I saw a coach I worked with who was always missing his kids soccer games because we were working and like, you know, yeah. there was times where he didn't see his kids for like four weeks because he would leave at six in the morning and then get home at, you know, nine o'clock at night and he would just keep missing them. And I just, I, when I had Austin, I was like, I just don't, I, if I can make more money, have more freedom, move back to Austin and, like I just, it just felt like that was the route that made more sense to me because I'd also be able to spend more time with my son. And so that was ultimately why that decision was made. Well, now you're one of the leading players when it comes to being a spokesperson for horse players. And, and I guess it's something completely different, but I still feel like you've used your talents to fast track yourself into another career path that is really seemingly taken off for you. And getting back to that um, professional player side, I still had some more questions even because we, we talked about the tax breaks and how you set it up as a business. Do you have a year strategy as a professional player? No, I, mean, I think, I, and that's one of the things that, you know, and I pointed out earlier is why I always try to shun the full professional title and go with the semi-professional because my friends who do do it professionally, I see the stresses that they have to go through. They do have to have a plan right. like that. I'm able to kind of just be a little, I take it seriously. I pay attention to what's going on. Um, I try to treat it more as a business than I do a hobby, but I'm not forced, like Austin's going to eat if I don't hit the pick five tomorrow. Right. Yeah. 
and and so I'm I'm very fortunate that I don't have those stresses. Um, so no, I don't map out a plan for the year um, of what I want to try to accomplish. I just try to I try to take advantage of opportunities. I try to stay away from action plays, which we still always get sucked into. I try to be efficient. I try to continue to learn and to grow as a player um, and as a better. And um, I try to take lessons that I've learned along the way and try not to duplicate them. Um, and I try not to, the biggest thing is to just not overextend yourself financially, because once you get into that place where you're overextended, you start doing the wrong things. Because um, the pressure builds up and you're, yeah, feel like yeah, you're getting yeah. backed into a corner. Yeah. If you, if you, if you can't lose a thousand and you're down a thousand, you'll do dumb stuff to try to get the thousand back. If you can lose a thousand and you lose a thousand, you typically don't turn that thousand into 5,000. You know what I mean? But if you're, it's so it's, it's, it's very important to, to not, to not, you know, and I did that as a young player, I would overextend myself and then you start to chase. And then you realize that it's not even, it's, it's the overextending that, that caused you to chase. It's not because you're a chaser. You don't chase when you lose what you can afford to lose and what you, you know what I'm saying? So that, that was something I had to, I had to, to figure out along the way. I'd say that that would have been one of your lessons. Do you have any others for, for those that are trying to get into this a little bit more seriously? What, what are some of other mistakes that you would say, stay away from this? Um, you know, I mean, I think that just like thinking you have it figured out, you know, I'll always be learning, always, uh, invite other ideas and people into your life that challenge you. You know, one of the biggest turnarounds for me was just like, um, my, my circle of friends that really pushed me, you know, not, not, not like directly pushed me, but just seeing what they did, you know, being able to spend time with Mike Maloney, um, uh, one of the best and, and successful professional players, um, ever. And, and being able to see the Matisse brothers and what they do, um, being able to see what Sean Borman does. And then just to kind of, you know, and then just becoming friends with, with just random people, that I became friends with on this contest scene to see what it is they do and how they do it. You just kind of start to see the things that you want to do, don't want to do. And, and, and you can kind of pick up from other people and, and just kind of piece together your own betting personality based on, you know, things you've seen. So that, that would be my biggest piece of advice is to, to always be learning and always growing um, and surrounding yourself with people that are smarter than you. Well, they do always say that if you want to go somewhere, ask someone that's already been there. So that seems to be a prime example of that. You alluded earlier about being a spokesperson uh, for DRF. And did you ever envisage yourself being asked for betting advice, such as, you know, what bets and incentive players want and need and, and even collaborating on, on maybe creating different bets like you are a little bit doing now? Um, no, I didn't really, I never really look when I, when I won the tour, um, and I got myself in a position to win it, it wasn't about the money. It was about the competitiveness of it. Like I wanted to win it. Like I've said earlier in the show, like I'm, I'm, I'm like nasty competitive. I wanted to win that just to say that I did, but also it's because I wanted to try to set up a situation where I could have some basic fundamental or uh, supplemental income to support my, my hobby. And and I never thought it was going to turn into everything that it is right now. Um, you know, I'm very thankful and, and happy that, that 
you know, myself and Pete and Paul Matisse and, and, and a lot, uh, you know, Marshall Graham, I'm very happy that we've been brought to the table from the, from the decision makers to that value our opinion. And, um, and, and that's a good thing I think for, for, for horse players, because we really do have horse players best interest in mind. So it's like, um, we've had conversations with different racetracks about new wagers and, and innovative wagers and changing wagers. And, uh, we've had conversations with, uh, different entities about trying to do this instead of doing that, or why can't we do this? And, um, you know, being on the Breeders' Cup wagering committee right after that kind of issue they had with the BCBC back in, I guess, 2017, you know, being able to be involved in, in, in fixing those rules and eliminating some of those problems and being involved in the decision for them to release plays after the Breeders' Cup betting challenge to be more transparent. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful that, that we're at, we're at the table and I know a lot of grumpy horse players will, will say, Oh, they're not doing enough or you guys are whatever. There's like a handful of people, but I'm a big believer in, and I learned this coaching. If you want to make withdrawals, you have to make deposits. And, and, and I, I learned that in coaching where if I'm going to rip some kid's ass for, for, for freaking, you know, blowing a coverage or running the wrong route, or showing up late to practice. If I'm going to do that, I have to have made positive deposits with that kid, put my arm around him after practice, tell him I'm proud of him, tell him how much I, I love him, have him, have him and the other uh, position group players over to have hot dogs and hamburgers at your house, welcome them into your home, introduce them to your family, um, give them a ride home from school instead of making them walk. All these things, you have to have made those positive deposits. Otherwise, when you go to make those withdrawals, there's nothing there. And I feel the same way when it comes to advocacy and, and trying to get things accomplished for racing is like, if I'm on Twitter slamming the Stronic group for not having will pays at Gulfstream and the Rainbow Six, then when I call Aiden to talk to Aiden about an initiative that I, that I want to get done or whatever, or I want to change this, he's like, wait a second, aren't you that guy that was just ripping us on Twitter the other day? And so I tried and so instead of tweeting that, I text Aiden, hey, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I understand not everyone can do that, but hey, hey, Aiden, dude, where are the, where are the will pays for the, the Rainbow Six, you yeah. know? And, and there's a lot of people on Twitter that people look to as, as horse player uh, advocates that all they do is complain. All they do is bitch and moan. And it, it just makes, you just get, you get the, you get the crazy tag you know, placed on your forehead and then no one listens to you anymore. So some people might not agree, but that's the way that I choose to go about things. And it, and, and it, and it, it works because we're still at the table. Yeah. But also uh, it allows the tracks to make that adjustment adjustment because you straight away went to the source and said, Hey, I think this could be better. How about this? Or what if you change this instead of slamming them and coming from a negative point of view, you're actually saying, Hey, this is good for you and good for me. Let's work on this. Yeah. And it's like, it, and it, and the other thing is, is like this, 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 I'm smarter than you and you're trying to ruin racing. You know, I, I can assure you that the, a lot of the decisions that are made in racing that I think are stupid, they come from a good place. They don't come from someone trying to screw over the better or trying to ruin the game. 
they might come from a place of, of innocent ignorance. Like they just didn't know. And that's fine. And maybe that's an annoying thing to some people, but instead of being annoyed about someone being ignorant about a topic, I'd rather try to, to, to educate them on the topic, but no one's going to listen to me if I've constantly thrown their ignorance in their face. There's no, no one wants to listen to that. You know, I wouldn't, someone just, somebody, somebody like went for me, went for me, went for me, went for me. And then like called me and was like, Hey man, what about this? I'd be like, dude, I'm not, yeah, who are you? Lost. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. Go somewhere else with your well-meant advice. Exactly. So how, how do you navigate? Cause you've just explained really uh, nicely how to actually drive change successfully. How do you navigate the social media scene? Because you seem to be thriving on, let's say, Twitter, and then I know there's other channels that you're on as well. But that's, you know, that's a very tricky environment to, to be in, especially in horse racing, it seems, but I think anywhere in any other sports, that, that's the case as well. Yeah, social media has been interesting for me. Therapeutically, what I do now, and then I'll go backwards to what I used to do. Therapeutically, what I do now is I go to my Twitter and I type the response that I want. I screenshot it and I send it to all my friends. <laughs> and because then I get that moment of, look at this idiot. I could bury him and do this. Da, 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 da. I could whatever. And, and then I don't send it, but I still feel good. I still feel like I got my revenge. Um, one of the things that I had to learn was, um, before I was just a person like that was, that didn't represent anyone or anything. I was just a guy who was a horse player. Um, I remember this one ding dong came for me one time where we were at, uh, we were at the, uh, at, uh, at, uh, Gulfstream the day after the Pegasus. And it was me and, and a bunch of friends, Pete Rotundo Jr., uh, Jake Ballas, uh, Richard, we were just hanging out and we were in a suite all hung over, just laying on the couches, whatever. And they had a mandatory payout. So everyone said, let's put together a group ticket. And I was like, and they were like, Jonathan, you can handle it all. So they gave me full autonomy to do whatever I wanted to do. And I said, all right, guys, it's, you know, $4,000. So everyone chips in their 500 bucks. We bet it. We scored out later that night. We were taking pictures of like holding money and being silly, just having a good time. And some ding dong says to me, uh, must be nice to have investors or something like that. <laughs> and I responded with an expletive, a pretty derogatory expletive. Now, back then I could get away with that because I was just a guy mm -hmm. that was just at the track. But now Working at not, you know, working with Naira, I I represent Naira. I represent the in the money media deal, where I can't be telling people to do to you know to do the, what I told that guy to do, and then go to these these professionals and say, hey, do you want to do you want to partner with us? It's just a bad look. It doesn't work mm -hmm. anymore. And so I first thing I had to do is I had to stop saying whatever I wanted on Twitter. Which is, which is not a bad thing because the, the truth of the matter is, is what I said to that guy, I don't apologize for it and I meant it, but I don't want my son to see that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I don't, that's not the, that's not the example I want to set for him. So that kind of came with that as well. Um, that responsibility. And then it got to the point where as my, as my, I don't, not popularity, but as my profile started to grow and, and, and I was more visible. I had to then learn how to handle criticism 
and ridiculousness from people. And my first move was to block them because I thought that was kind of a nice, subtle F you. Mm-hmm. But then I realized they started wearing the block as a badge of honor. Yeah, the screenshots and, they like and uh, banded hey, look, together. Look. Yeah. yeah. So now what I do is I just mute them because then they don't know that I'm not seeing them and they're poking at me and not getting the response they want. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's funny to me. That's, that's it. And, and it doesn't get me drug into it because I'm not mature enough to not get drug into it. I'm too competitive. <laughs> like we talked about it. And if someone says something stupid to me, it, I, it just sucks me in and I feel like I have to say something, but then I realize all the things that I'm representing my son, Naira in the money media. Um, and I just can't, I just can't do it. I can't say it. So I just leave it alone and let them feel like they've got a victory over me. Well, DK, I certainly think that in terms of your social media, that is probably the right course of action to either mute people or to perhaps reply, but not reply. So you still get that bit of satisfaction, but you don't actually have to do anything with it. I mean, you're taking the higher road as well, because you are a representative of these brands and you're a father and I think that's the best best way to go. So you certainly have figured it out. As going back for to the horse racing scene here, we're in the middle of the Triple Crown Trail. Does the Triple Crown Trail in general present significant opportunities for players? Or do you think it's more an industry and a fan staple that everyone enjoys? I mean, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think that... I think that it's, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that the Kentucky Derby is a phenomenal wagering opportunity. Um, there's a lot of casual fans that are playing on that day. So there's uh, there's a nice little edge there. There's also a 20-horse field. Um, and that's a nice opportunity as a wagering proposition. There's a lot of money in the pools on that day for the multi-race bets. So to pay attention to the Triple Crown Trail and to really formulate an opinion moving forward, for the Kentucky Derby, I think that is definitely something as a better that's important. As far as the fan part of it, yeah, I mean, obviously it's exciting as well. Um, the Derby is our is our strongest asset as racing, and so the hype for it is something I never am annoyed by. You know, I, I, if 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 we stop if we stop having the hype for the Derby, we're all in trouble. So it's an exciting thing; we should appreciate it and embrace it. You know, I know people get annoyed about bath photos. Keep them coming; I don't care. <laughs> You know, I I like the bath photos because they're very American and the Kentucky Derby trail and and the Triple Crown does translate to other countries across the globe selling that American dirt racing three-year-old classic product. So I I agree with you. I think we should absolutely continue with all the hype, all the bath photos, all the workout reports, all the videos, keep them coming because I watched them all the time and I did even before moving to the United States. So I think it's a really big product and brand. So talking about, you know, keeping in touch with the horses that are are moving into contention, do you have any early Kentucky Derby thoughts? I'm sure you've already outlined them a little bit on the players podcast too, but just, you know, quick little nibble here. Yeah, no, actually we, we, uh, you know, Pete and I always joke, we're the, we, we're the anti Derby list types. Um, <laughs> And I explained it actually on the show that I did today. So uh, I don't mind repeating it again for your, for your listeners. Essentially, like I try not to fall in love with horses yet because I, I used to do that and it cost me money. I fell in love with Sydney's candy, fell, you know, fell in love with, with Verrazano, um, fell in love with just, uh, you know, 
there's tons of them I can think of that I fell in love with. And really I save my falling in love for after the mile and an eighth preps. I try not to fall in love at the mile, mile and a 16th um, preps, because I feel like it can just lead you down a bad road. And, and, and like I said, I'm competitive. So if I say something, it's harder for me to like go away from it. If I've, if I've pledged something already, because I want to be right. And so um, I just, man, I wait. I, I, I take in information. Uh, Medina spirit has got a little bit of heart. Seems interesting. We'll see what happens. Life is good. Maybe he was disinterested. Maybe he didn't want to go that far. We'll find out concert tour, probably not meant to sprint and has done it pretty well. We'll see what happens with him. Prevalence, not meant to win first out for someone like Brendan Walsh was impressive. Let's see what happens with him. Um, you know, uh, I'm going blank on Suge's Colt's name. Greatest uh, honor. Greatest honor. It looks it feels a lot like orb should continue to progress. Let's see what happens with him. Um, risk taking got a nice trip last time. Let's see what happens. It's like, I don't, I have zero. Oh, and, and by the way, the two-year-old champ hasn't made his debut yet. What's going to happen with him? Was he a two-year-old that was beating up on the less mature or is he, yeah. is he a superstar like street sense and Nyquist who's going to continue to, to, to progress as a two-year-old into a three-year-old. Uh, for me, I just, try to take in all the information, bet the race that's in front of me and save all that love and admiration and decision-making for, you know, the week of the Derby. You know, one of the other things about the Derby is that it seems like every year since I've stopped doing that and I leave my vote, you know, undecided until the week of, I've always found one that seems to be working particularly well on the racetrack that week. And so it's another reason to kind of wait, you know, that's kind of the icing on the cake for the decision for me. So, um, those are all horses I'm interested in. And, and like I said, I'm paying attention, but, uh, I'll wait and see, uh, before I start locking in too much. Do you like that strategy? And, uh, there's so much that can happen on that road to the Kentucky Derby, even in the week leading up to it. So you don't want to find yourself kind of stuck in, unless of course you have some very good prices that you got in those uh, future pools and it's working out for you. And by all means, I'm very happy for everyone that uh, have a couple of these horses. You say um, you're saving a little bit of love for late. Talking about a place that you absolutely love. I didn't want to let you go without talking about Saratoga. It feels like that's your home away from home. What is it for you that makes it so special? And I have a couple of stories that we're going to mention here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I went, my first racetrack was Lone Star Park and it was a nice, it's a nice facility. Um, the quality of racing is, 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 you know, it's not Naira and Gulfstream and Keeneland and Churchill and Santa Anita and Del Mar. And it's just, you know, and that's okay. It doesn't have to be. And a lot of it's not Lone Star's fault. A lot of it is some of the restrictions in Texas and the way that gambling is is set out in Texas. I'm not going to get on my political soapbox, but long story short, essentially Texas is surrounded by three states that have a very heavy gaming uh, presence and they're large donators to our policymakers here in Texas that will always prevent gambling from becoming legal here because it will cost them money on the outskirts. But anyways, so going to Lone Star, I, I, I that was what I knew. And then my, my next love was Santa Anita. I fell in love with Santa Anita, walking onto that apron, seeing the San Gabriel mountains, uh, fell in love with the people at Santa Anita, the Eddie Logan suite and, 
and Orcadia and TQ and Nate Newby and, uh, and then all my friends at, at Santa Anita that we would have some really great moments there. And, um, I love Keeneland. The first time I got to go to Keeneland, just the history and just feeling like you're in Kentucky watching great racing. And I, I love that. And then, you know, I got the opportunity about four years ago, I think maybe 2015, the year that I won the tour was the first time that I made it to Saratoga. And I am an, uh, I like to be immersed in things that I love. And Saratoga is an immersion. When you're there, it's all about racing. You go to the, you go to the grocery store, you go to the coffee place in the morning, you're going to see trainers, you're going to see riders, you're going to see owners, you're going to hear people talking about the seventh, about the maiden. And you just, it's just, you feel it. The weather is like wonderful, you know, unless when it's raining, but it's like, it's cool in the mornings, but it's warm. And during the day, you can wear a jacket at night. You don't have to wear one. Then you're going to all these restaurants and there's, oh my God, there's Suge. Wow. That's Johnny V. There's Chad. Oh wow. There's that. There's Baffert. There's Mike Rapoli. And it's like, you feel like you're in the midst of it. And so, um, I fell in love with that. And, and, uh, and then having the opportunity, I've always dreamed of being able to spend an entire summer at a Saratoga or a Del Mar. And then that with the Dyer thing and, and the Fox thing that became a reality. And, and last summer was my second entire summer there, I think. Yeah. Second. No, wait, yeah, no. Yes. Second entire summer there. Um, and man, I, and, and, and we kind of got, you know, a little bit cheated on the experience last time. So I'm really looking forward to it, but I love it. Um, I just, it just, it just makes me happy. Just thinking about it makes me very, very happy. I'm sitting here thinking, oh dear, I really want to go back to Saratoga. I'm not sure I will this year, but as you were saying, it's a town that breathes racing. It's, it's all about horse racing and it's such a wonderful place to be. And it seems so natural for everyone to be following the sport and to be talking about it. And as for the restaurants, what are you doing every night at Soleva? Are we going to see you do a show from a corner there anytime soon? Man, I tell you what. So that whole thing happened because um, I had I went last year. Tony Alivato, uh, the the director of of a lot of things at, at Naira, but but you know obviously our our TV boss told me you got to go to Soleva. It's really good. And he actually gave me his table one night when he didn't use it. And I went and we ate there and it was good. I enjoyed it. I liked the place, but you know, Saratoga is hard to get into restaurants, especially like normal. Like when it, you know, this year it was a little bit easier, but it was still pretty hard, but you know, it's when it's busy, it's hard to get into places. You got to try to get a reservation. I've always hated waiting in lines. I don't want to be on a waiting list for an hour and 30 minutes. It just drives me insane. And so this year, I, I had a, you know, everyone was obviously really nervous about what was going to happen with COVID. I felt some responsibility that if I were to get COVID, I was going to shut down production. So I didn't really want to take a lot of chances eating indoors. And I just kind of had a rule. I wanted to eat outside if we were going to go to dinner. And that was just kind of my thing. You know, 15 church had a nice little patio. Um, there was other places. Uh, Salt and Char had the patio out front. Um, yeah. Boca had like two tables outside and, and, uh, where I was staying at the Spring Street Deli. Oh, and also uh, Oster- Osteria Danny had some outside tables. I, where I was staying, I would, you know, we would kind of walk that way and it was pretty close to walk when we were going downtown. And so we would walk by Salevo all the time. And, and um, 
G, who is one of the owners of Salevo, her father, Ron, would like said hello to me one day and was like, oh my gosh, you know, we watch the show all the time. You know, let us know if you ever need a table or whatever. And he was just very welcoming and nice. And my eyes lit up. It was like, oh, wait a second. (laughs) So I don't, I can eat here outside. I don't have to wait. Like, this is kind of awesome. I'm really excited about this. And like, I love relationships and I like going somewhere and feeling like I, you know, the whole friends thing. I'm not friends, but, uh, 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 cheers thing, you know, go where everyone knows your name. It's fun to be in places where you know people and you're hello. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. All that stuff. And so I just like kind of started going there and like, Hey, and they'd be like, yeah, we got your table out. You know, they'd get to work it out. And then I fell in love with G and fell in love with Joey and fell in love with their parents and fell in love with their brother, Ron, who's, who's the, the kind of the, the chef in the back behind the scenes guy. And I just like, loved going somewhere where a, I didn't have to really wait that much. Don't get me wrong. I waited for a table there for like an hour and 45 minutes, a couple times, but it just, and then I just loved the experience. And then, and now they're like family. Like we, like the last night we were there, we all went out to get drinks afterwards. And it was like our first time kind of hanging out socially. And like, it was like bizarre how much we just like all like felt like a family and like, I still talk to them all the time. Like once every couple of weeks, I just text and, you know, gee, how's it going? And she'll check on me. They sent when my father passed away. They sent me um, like 10 frozen pizzas from their hometown in, in, in Connecticut. Like, Oh, wow. Um, they're just so great lovely. people. And so if I have a choice of going to go eat delicious food at their place or delicious food somewhere else, I'm always going to default to delicious food at their place. And I'm one of the things I'm the most excited about this year is last year. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to bring Austin because of the the pandemic and this year I am, and he's going to absolutely love them and he's going to love going there and like them knowing him and like bringing, you know, like he's going to fall in love with something on the menu and they're going to always make, you know, it's like, he's going to love that. And I'm very excited for like them to meet him and, and for him to be kind of part of that family as well. So that's what it's all about for me. Like I have that hat on my set. There's been no money exchanged for that. Like I just love them and I love their restaurant and what they stand for. And I just want to, you know, I want to celebrate that. And talking a little bit about Austin, that's maybe a good time. You have, and I'm going to say this hands down, the coolest kid ever, because the first time I saw your son walk in was when we had one of those production meetings. Well, that was pre-COVID. This was 2019, I believe, Saratoga. And he used to walk around with an iPad and he'll just come and like hang out whenever we're doing meetings. And he walks in and he's like the coolest person in the room, right? Just kind of like chills out, doesn't care, all good, like that kind of vibe. And I thought to myself, damn, this is really, really cool kid. And then obviously he's incredibly polite, very sweet. I just want you to, I wanted to ask you a little bit about him and also something that I think you do with him. You repeat a saying to him, which I think is super cute. Just, just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, he's, he can get like, you know, sometimes he'll get like a little nervous about situations and I'll be like, Hey dude, dad'll, you know, daddy will always keep you and he'll finish it and he'll say safe. Like, and that's just like my deal. Like I just want him to feel safe all the time. I want him to know that like he's the priority and that I'll always make sure to put him in situations where, uh, he's safe, you know, emotionally and physically. And so, um, I think that that's kind of, kind of, you know, and his mom's the same way. And I think I've tried to, we've tried to 
create a situation where, you know, when you're comfortable somewhere, you can kind of be yourself a little bit more and you can enjoy the experience a little bit more and, and not be like overly shy and nervous and whatever. And, um, he just goes with the flow and, you know, and when I had him that entire summer, he would just come to the production meetings with me and he would just chill. He'd have his headphones on and be watching something on YouTube and he would just chill out. And if we got there early, we'd grab a donut or we'd grab one on the way out or, um, yeah, he's a really cool kid, man. He's, he just, he chills out and, you know, I'm super proud of him. I love hanging out with him and, and, uh, and I'm really excited about, uh, just, you know, I'm, I'm really big on creating experiences. I, I think that that's, you know, w- when you're laying on your deathbed, whenever that happens to be, like, I feel like you look back and you have relationships and experiences and the rest of that stuff doesn't matter. Now, obviously you have opportunities for more experiences if you have the means financially. Um, so there is that portion of it. You try to put yourself in a situation to be successful from that standpoint. So you can create more of those experiences. But, you know, my focus typically is on experiences and relationships and like, um, I just, we try to do fun stuff, him and I, you know, we, we, uh, we, we went to, uh, Tennessee a couple of years back to watch Texas play in a, in a, in the March madness tournament. And we couldn't get out of Nashville when we were trying to fly home. So we took a three hour Uber to, to Memphis. And like most people would say like, Oh my God, that sounds miserable. Like he'll remember that. And I remember that. And it was fun and it was exciting and it was interesting. And why couldn't you know, get out? Well, cause like my mom retired from American. So we, we flew standby oh. and it was just a busy weekend. And so you couldn't, we couldn't get out that weekend. And so we had to get over to Memphis to be able to have a chance to get out. So um, anyways, and so like, yeah, I mean, you know, like little stuff like that, like uh, the, a couple summers ago when he was with me, we took an Uber from Saratoga to the city so that we could, there was a first class flight using our flight benefits. Not that I paid for that. There was a first class flight <laughs> from JFK to oh, jealous. <laughs> yeah. From JFK to, to, to uh, San Diego. Cause I was going to play in the Del Mar contest. So we took the Uber down there so that he could have that experience of like having his own little pod flying overnight to California. Like I want him to like experience things and, and to know that there's that the sky's the limits and, and that, and, you know, going back to that saying the entire time, I just want him to know that he's safe while we're doing it, whatever it is, you know, I'm always going to try to, so yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a cool kid. It means a lot to me that you said that and I appreciate it. And, and, uh, I'm really looking forward to, to this summer at Saratoga. It was a real bummer not to be able to take him last year, but that was a decision that we made just with the track, you know, cause usually what happens is that, you know, the summer before that is when I went on air for two or three hours, I would you know, Pete was at the track every day. And so Austin would come with me and he would just hang out with Pete and just sit at the table with Pete and, and all of our other, and Doogie and all of our other horse player buddies. And if he wanted something to eat, they would hook him up and he would just play the iPad for two hours while I was on air. And I didn't know what I was going to do with him this year. Cause I couldn't bring him to the track. I didn't want him to be around a whole bunch of people. So I just yeah. had to make the decision to not be able to take him. And it was, a, it was a sucky decision and it was a tough decision, but you know, Ultimately, I wanted to, you know, like I told you, I, I, my job is to keep him safe. And I felt like that was the safest choice. Yeah. No, well, I, I have to say that that is the better choice that you could have made. And it, it's been a very uh, 
tricky and challenging year for everyone and we've all missed out on things that we wanted to do or share with people that we couldn't so hopefully this year it's going to be a little bit better but I just wanted to highlight how how much he you know he means to you and he's part of your life and the fact that you guys are able to share these moments together and that you can get him involved with wherever you're going and what you're doing must be such a wonderful thing and like I said I've seen him before and he's you know a spitting image of his dad in terms of coolness and fun and you know so definitely wanted people to to know a little bit about him if they didn't know now talking a little bit more about Saratoga I wouldn't have been me if I didn't contact Lafitte Pinkai III to ask him about <laughs> stories that I should be telling on this show with you. But the only one he gave me was the one that I actually was half a part of, namely the day that you were at Druthers for about eight hours. Talking about staking out somewhere. Man, that was a fun day. We were getting towards the end, and I think we were all realizing, you know, that we we all obviously get along on the show and and uh the behind the scenes people and the in front of the camera people and you know that was one of those days where we could feel it coming to an end and uh myself Terrence DG my girlfriend Casey you came later um Lafitte and we got to Druthers at like 11:45 like noon right and we <laughs> started hanging out and next thing you know it was 8 30 and we were still there <laughs> and we didn't slow down we were having the best time and in fact i think lafitte went home and i think you came with us i'm pretty sure you did but i know like myself terrence casey we all we went to salevo like we walked from druthers i'm pretty sure to I can, yeah that was it that was quite the quite kept it going the kept it going but yeah i mean it was, just, it was just a fun day like the weather was great and like you know having those dark days it's like those two dark days it's just it's it's nice to just kind of relax and you know we had the fun day where we went up to to lake george which is feels like will be a monday tuesday tradition throughout the year we had the lake day that was fun um <laughs> You know, we went to dinner one night at Angel Cordero's house, which was an absolute blast because most people don't, I don't know if everyone knows this, but like Lafitte and Angel have a very close relationship because Lafitte's dad and Angel were very close. Although they never rode necessarily full time in the same colony together, they were very close. And so watching Lafitte and and Angel like kind of go back and forth on stories was, was just like an absolute blast. Um and, and, you know, the funny thing about that is you bring up Lafitte, Lafitte's kind of like, Lafitte's kind of like one of those, for me, he's like kind of one of those treasures of like this whole experience of doing the show It's because, you know, when I first started getting involved, when I talked about driving to Ratama and I talked about going to Lone Star with my dad and starting to learn the game, I used to watch HRTV all the time and I'd watch all these shows that Lafitte was on and Lafitte has like kind of always, he, you know, he's been like a racing celebrity to me. And then to have the opportunity to, to get to work with him and to get to know him was obviously great in its own right. But like, he's, he's just like the greatest. He's such a thoughtful person. Um, he like calls and checks on me and he's like asking about Austin and he's a great listener when you got like life things going on. And so um, you know, my relationship with him and Terrence and, and everyone really, I mean, Wolfie and just, it's, it's been, it's been a, a real blessing in, in terms of what that show has brought me 
from a personal standpoint outside of just the obvious professional and um, kind of advantages. But um, yeah, LP3, he, he's, a, he's a good one. I have to second that, that the team that's responsible for the, the Naira shows is like a family and, and everyone really appreciates each other and, and what they do on a personal and professional level. So it's been one of my pleasures to work with them as well. So definitely going to miss them. Hopefully yeah, get the chance to, to go back again. I mean, I think a lot of people, when you think about it, like think about working wherever it is that you work. And like, we all have those two or three people you like, oh my God, I cannot stand this person. Like, I really don't feel that way about our show. Like I love like literally everyone. Like I, I really enjoy everyone we work with. I don't feel like I have any beef. You know, there's always that work beef. I don't think I have that. Like I love, you know, it's all three of our producers, Terrence, Bobby, Evan, uh, the directors, Mitch, Danny Glow, uh, Jody's great. All the PAs that we dealt with are great. Eric, Tony are easy to work with. And then, and then I hate the word talent, but then all the in front camera people as, as, as well. I mean, I love working with Maggie and, and, uh, and Richie and both the hosts and Acacia. And it's just, you know, it's, I, I really, really enjoy it. And I, I would, it would be annoying if I didn't like those people. You know, it'd be, it'd be an annoying job to do not getting along with the people you have to work with. Yeah. My theory is always that everyone's so busy. There's no time to dislike each other, but also there's no reason to, because everyone has such a wonderful character and tries so hard and is so, you know, everyone just has each other's back. And I think that was something that I thought was just so you're always welcomed in like a family. So anyone that goes in there as a PA, you're going to have an absolute blast because it's just that good. There's almost been some fights in the product in the in the production meetings, but I was not involved in any of those. <laughs> I actually know what you're talking about, so um, uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll just leave that here for now. <laughs> um, let's talk about some of the other antics at the spa. Is the good old shirt switcheroo going to make another appearance? Appearance. Tell tell the listeners what you and Lafitte did. Yeah, no, that was a good one. Um, we, we, I'm sure we'll do it again this year. I, I think it almost happened this year, but um, the way that the schedule was, Lafitte and I weren't on the same desk together very much. So what Lafitte had this, we had this idea that we were going to switch shirts and, and I was, well, he was going to wear my shirt and I was going to wear like a suit or whatever while we were on one desk, but we weren't going to tell Greg. So when Greg you know, when they do that, that mid show update, we're like whoever. So if Lafitte's hosting the early, then that's actually the other way around. Greg was ho- hosting the early with Andy. And then they went to Lafitte for Lafitte to say what's coming up next. And when they did that, Lafitte had on my shirt, but we didn't tell Greg. So he looked at the monitor and was actually shocked when he saw it. And then they went to me where I had on the suit and they were both shocked. My favorite part about it is, and I love them. But old grumpy Andy didn't even smile. He didn't even <laughs> he didn't even crack a smile. He had no time for games, um, and uh, and no, it was fun. And then you know, Acacia and I did a little bit of a version of that where she had on uh, the famous Ric Flair shirt that Jonathan Thomas got me, and uh, she wore that for a couple of a couple of seconds. So um, it's fun. You know, it's 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 good to have fun on the show. It's we're we're, we're fortunate to be you know doing uh, doing something we all love. So why not have a little bit of fun with it? Absolutely. I still remember Greg's face the first time that that happened. It was like a, wait, hold on, what's going, like a double take. He did an actual double take and you could see it in his face. He was like, I, I don't know what just happened. Did I miss this? Yeah, <laughs> it was no, really I think, good. 
did I did I tell you I'm working I'm working on uh I'm working on getting kind of like a trade deal with a big like golf cart company to get like a souped up golf cart for cart for cart talk. Oh yeah, because our golf cart was nothing compared to what was it? Chad Brown has a good one. Who had the best one? Who had the best one? Last uh, Saul year? had a really good one, but with he, music as well, right? Yeah, yeah, Stereo yeah. Like speaking, yeah. yeah, yeah. His was good. His was really good. So um, that that segment will be back this summer, and 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 hopefully it'll be a little bit. Uh, you know, hopefully things kind of start to normalize a little bit by then, and it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit different this time around. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, can't wait to see the coverage as well. Talking about loving all these different tracks that you mentioned, you know, falling in love with Santa Anita, Saratoga. If you were to move to one place close to a track, if it wasn't for the fact that, of course, you'll be residing right. in Texas for the next long time to come, where would you go? Um, there's there's three places in this world that I could live. Um and well, four places in this world I could live. One of them, I could live in New York City. I like the hustle bustle of it. it. It'd be harder to kind of imagine how I would do it now, like you know, considering like having a, you know having Austin and all that stuff. But as a as a as an idea, I could live in New York City. Um, I could absolutely and would be happy to own a home in Lexington, Kentucky, Ooh. in La Jolla, which is like thirty minutes away from Del Mar. And Saratoga. Uh, those are the, those are the three places that I could see myself like owning a home, um, and like you know having it be like a, a like a second home or you know when I when Austin's graduated he's off to college places I could see myself moving or living. Yeah, definitely really good spots as well. I I just remember I brought my uh, partner up to Saratoga. Obviously, you you met him as well last year. And the first thing he we were walking around and he's like, "Oh, I could live here." And I was like, "Yes, yes, we should move to Saratoga. I would like that." <laughs> so I thought of that when I was thinking of this question because there's just certain places that have that vibe and they're obviously conveniently close to a racetrack, making it a good spot to live. I'll be perhaps at Saratoga it doesn't work year round and I think that makes it tricky because it's not like if you were a broadcaster or a handicapper you can't just unless you're working from home there isn't a year round thing for you to do in Saratoga which makes it tricky but not impossible I'm still working on that one if you ever see me uh, owning a house in Saratoga it means I succeeded let's get back to some more random questions that I want to ask you just for people to get to know you a little bit better we all would have seen it because you always wear the short sleeved shirts. You got to tell us the story behind your tattoos. And I feel like I'm allowed to ask this because I have a tattoo myself that most people don't know about. And I remember telling you, and the first thing you said is, where is your tattoo place? Because <laughs> nobody sees it. And no, it's just on my shoulder. It's not any naughty place or anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, I always wanted to get a tattoo. And um, when I was younger, I had... Uh, had some like crazy ideas. I, 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 for whatever reason, I always thought that the little cartoon penguin, uh, chili Willie was funny. Cause he always had like pancakes. And I used to like joke that I was going to get a chili Willie tattoo or in, you know, some, you know, some dumb, you know, Chinese symbol or, or, or whatever. And I skipped all of that young decision-making when it came to tattoos. And then once I got to a point where I stopped coaching and we started the real estate business. And once that was successful and we had kind of sold our first property and, and real, and I kind of realized at that point, I wasn't going to work for anyone else. Like 
like, like in that sense where I had to like go on a job interview and I would have to cover up my tattoos. Like I, I decided I was going to get one. And I actually, my first tattoo was on the eve of palace malice's, um, Belmont stakes. So I had scheduled this appointment and I, uh, my, my artist was uh, a girl by the name of Mo Malone who does like a phenomenal job. And like, you know, one of those people that's like, if you called her today to get a tattoo, she would tell you she's got an appointment in September type of people. Yeah. And, um, I had told her that I wanted to get my son's birthday in saddle cloths. I wanted to get some horses that were inspirational to me. And then I wanted to get the three flowers of the triple crown with crowns on the flowers. Um, and then I wanted on the, t- you know, and then somewhere if it worked, I wanted to have the, the, the two iconic twin spires. And part of my thing was, is people have like castles and, and all kinds of things and tattoos and they have wolves and, and wolves and elephants and all kinds of things. Like, why can't I have horses and the twin spires? Right. And, yeah. um, so I gave her all these ideas and then she slowly started kind of mapping out where we were going to go with it. And she started on the inside of my wrist, which is for people out there that have tattoos. It is the most painful. It's one of the most painful. It feels like it, like it feels like your wrist is on fire. Like someone took Oof. a lighter and it's like, it, it just, it's so the Eve before the Belmont is when I got my first, when she started and right when she started, I said to myself, I think I'm going to have to quit. Like I'm not, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. Yeah. And so she went ahead and did the outline of the 10, 13, 11 Austin's birthday, um, in saddle cloths with the, you know, purple 10 Brown 13 and the gray and red, um, 11 with roses and lilies around it. And I got that tattoo. Um, she wrapped it up and then I went to the airport to meet my dad in Dallas and we flew and went to the Belmont. And I remember like having this fresh tattoo wrapped in plastic, trying to navigate traveling and navigating the Belmont stakes. And, um, you know, it, it turns out it's funny that that's the most memorable moment I had at the racetrack with my dad. And, and, um, and so, yeah, so I have that, I have Rachel, uh, the, the head on picture of Rachel running in the Kentucky Oaks, I've got like a kind of a headshot of Zenyatta. I've got um, Barbaro um, when he won the Derby. And then I have the, you know, a black eyed Susan, a carnation and a rose with crowns on it. And, um, and then the twin spires on the top, like kind of like the top part of it. So that's really cool. So obviously all this one sleeve, which arm is it for everyone that has, it's my, it's my left arm. Yeah. It's funny. Like I did my left arm because I'm Mm right-handed and I thought to myself, if it gets infected and my arm falls off, I'd rather it be my left than my right. (laughs) That's a good way of looking at it. (laughs) Honest conversation I have with myself. Um, and, and so I've, that was back, you know, I started back in, in, I guess I was 2012 in palace malice one. So it's been, gosh, it's been eight years now since I've had it. Um, I'm going to do my right arm when I can finally get Mo. She moved to Colorado. So I have to, I'm either going to have to go to see her or when she comes back down here, but I kind of want my right arm to be kind of a dedication piece to my dad. So, um, my dad and I have the same birthday, um, July 1st. So I want to get like a seven, one saddle cloth on my right arm. He also played our address all the time. So I want to get three, one, eight saddle cloth on my other arm. And then I want to get a couple like new horses that, um, that kind of have remind me of my dad palace malice winning 
uh, the Belmont would be one because that was one of those moments that I'll, I'll never forget when it comes to my dad. Um, you know, and, um, and then a couple of other ones along the way that have really kind of, you know, moved me and grabbed my soul a little bit. Um, and then just kind of do the other arm because, you know, why not? No, why not? What, which other horses were you thinking of? Yeah. You know, it's funny as I, 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 um, I haven't really thought, I mean, I think that, you know, a couple of horses that have really captivated me and my love for this game is, you know, and and Pete always makes fun of me and I jokingly talk about Divisadero all the time, but he was important to me for a lot of different reasons. Um, One of my best friends in the world now is Jake Ballas. And that was one of the, that horse was kind of one of the moments that turned us into, I know that guy into friends where I was walking in Richard as well, walking by them at the Derby said what's up because we were two guys from Texas, three guys from Texas. And Jake was like, who do you like? And I said, I love DeVisadero. Then the horse wins. I see him again later. Then we talk again. If the horse didn't win, I'm not sure we would have talked again. <laughs> it would have been then, what a terrible handicapper you are. <laughs> right, right. And then I ran into him again and we we talked. And then again and we talked. And the next thing you know, we exchanged numbers. He comes to Texas because his family lives here. And we went to dinner in Austin and our friendship is, has grown and grown and grown. And now I consider him one of my best friends in the world. And, and, and so Divisadero obviously, and he's a big reason I won the tour. Um, so he means a lot to me. So I, I wouldn't have any problem, uh, you know, getting him, um, getting him. Obviously I mentioned palace malice. Um, you know, I'm trying to think like who else, like I just absolutely adore. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking around like my, my, who knows? I'm sure something will come to my mind, but, but th- you know, those two guys for sure. Um, you know, maybe something a little bit Saratoga ish. I could see myself doing, you know, maybe kind of something red and white themed like those, like those awnings um, could be interesting maybe on, on part of it. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's interesting. It's an interesting idea, but uh, yes, yeah, you know, I got to think about some more horses. Maybe those two are good enough. I don't need to have too many more. No, I like it. I, I think that the stories behind um, the choices for tattoos are always incredibly interesting. And I don't always say that we would talk about it enough because I feel it tells a story about you and your life and what's important to you. And and I do think it's interesting that you highlighted that when you knew you weren't going to work for other people and would have to cover them up, that that's when you sort of went for it. And I think that's something, that's my reasoning to have it on my shoulder. And a lot of people would never really see it unless it's summer and I'm wearing a bikini or something, because I think it's different now. I think people look at tattoos differently than they did 10 or 20 years ago, but I'm sure that in that time still was a little bit frowned upon. And maybe if you were go for a work interview, they wouldn't like it as much, but I don't think that you as a broadcaster showing your, your tattoos, that's never been an issue, right? There, has there ever been no, any talk about no. that? And I honestly think like, I, you know, I honestly think that it, pro- I, I think that part of it like helped to a certain extent with, with people's interest in getting me involved from a media standpoint. Um, the NTRA, the DRF back then it's, it's, it's not because to me, it's not because uh, I just, you know, uh, I think that, that, racing as a whole understands that its core customer is getting older. And I think racing as a whole would like to present itself as an option for the younger audience. There's a lot of things that they don't do right. In my opinion, to do that, to accomplish that. But I think one of the things that when it came to like me is that like, 
I am horse racing young. I mean, I'm 38 years old, so it's not like I'm like 22 and change, but I'm horse racing young. And I think that the way that I dress, the way that I carry myself, the tattoos, all that stuff kind of accentuate the idea that like I'm horse racing young. And I think that that was attractive to certain people. I think you're quite probably quite right about that. You, you aren't the standard type that people would have seen on TV as an analyst in the past. And hence that probably speaks to a lot more of a younger crowd in terms of, because I do think that our generation, my generation, I'm 10 years younger than you are a lot more about self-expression and that can also include tattoos and the way you dress as well. The fact that you have made that uh, wearing different shirts, your own and, and really take pride in that. Now, I think that's awesome as it is, because as a female, we're always dressing different every day, right? And I know that Lafitte also takes great pride in wearing different suits and different combinations. But I love that for you, you're never wearing the same shirt. You're always, you know, trying to see which shirt for which day. How much time goes into that anyway? Um, You know, there'll be days where I'll just like open up the, like the seven or eight places that I go to, to get shirts. I'll open up like all the tabs and I'll just like buy like 10 shirts because I know that I have to have them. So occasionally I'll just check in to grab them. Um, you know, it, I, yes, I do kind of try to, I mean, there's a certain amount of planning when it comes to it. Like I, I sent Lafitte and, and Terrence a picture of this leopard print shirt that I got. And I said, I said, I said, I'm saving this one for a good day. I was gonna say, when have because you like, worn that? I love yeah, animal print. Yeah, I haven't worn, I haven't worn it yet. But you can't, you know, it's like you can't wear it on a Wednesday at Saratoga when, when not that many people are watching. You wear that <laughs> on, you know, you wear something like that on Whitney Day. Um, I, I actually bought this like red, white, and blue kind of. I would never wear it any other time because it's kind of like it's a little bit corny, but. <laughs> I'm going to wear it on the fourth, like on our 4th of July show that we have. So it's like, you know, I bought a Mardi Gras shirt that I plan on wearing at some point this weekend. Cause I believe if I'm not mistaken, Mardi Gras starts in, uh, in, and we have some big races from the fairground. So I can wear the Mardi Gras theme shirt and like, you know, just try to have a little bit of fun with it. But at the same time, like before I, before I got on TV, like, you find old pictures for me at the track. Like when I would go to the Derby, I didn't wear a suit to the Derby. I wore short sleeve, like button ups that like, in like colored pants and like fun, you know, fun kind of summer, spring, my own version type of deal. I've always done that. So it's not like, you know, whatever. Um, and so that's not you like know. you put it on just for broadcasting. It was always a part of your own style as it was. Yeah, hundred percent. And don't get me wrong. I know that some of the shirts that now I wear are probably a step further than I would go in a normal setting, but, but that's like, because now it's a thing and you can only wear so many of them, you know? Um, and you know, I've teased about this already, but this is some more groundbreaking info for the show Ooh. is, um, you know, we've, I've got a, I've, I've, Old Smoke and I are working on a shirt and it's going to, it's in production and we'll be out. It will be out. I think we're going to start probably put up, like start talking about pre-orders for it pretty soon. Cause it's supposed to be ready in about April. So it'll be ready in time for Derby, but we're really excited about that. So we're going to do, you know, some short sleeve shirts that are, that are a little bit more racing themed and, um, and they're kind of like the style that you wear. 
Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Like I was, uh, Kurt from, from old smoke and I were both like intimately involved in the process of what it is we were creating. So it's, uh, I'm excited about it. It's going to be fun, um, to do. I'm looking forward to seeing those. That would be, that would be very cool indeed. I might have to sport one myself one day now. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, for sure. We'll get you, we'll get you a smaller one. Oh, sounds good. Sounds good. I'll definitely wrap it on the uh, Laurel Park simulcast. Uh, we've been going for a while, but before I let you go, I still wanted to mention one of the stories that I don't think we outlined on my first ever time having you on this show, namely the first time, I think it was the first time you ever made a TV appearance. And it was at Santa Anita Park and it involved a certain broadcaster that you at the time had a little bit of a crush on. <laughs> Huge crush. Um, it was actually at Del Mar. Um, oh, I thought it was at Santa Anita. I couldn't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my ex-wife and I, back when she used to do cool things, we um, we went to to uh it was kind of a kind of a combo deal i think a lot of a lot of couples can probably relate to this it's like you agree to go to this one place because you can kind of kill two birds with one stone right like she loved the beach and like la jolla and all that stuff and i could go to get this you know experience being able to see zenyatta run live for the first time and so we were there carrying on and um, she had kind of known that I had a crush on, on, on Michelle Yu, And so she went up to Michelle in like in the production and was like, Hey, my, you know, my husband would love to like be on the show. He's like a huge fan and like to do the, you know, me and you thing. And so they're like, sure. Perfect. You know? And like now knowing TV, they were just probably wondering who the hell they were going to grab. And luckily some woman came up and offered me up. So, um, we go and we do like the competition where she essentially gives you clues and you try to guess the word. I think it's basically like categories. I think, I think that's how categories works. Um, like she'll say a bunch of stuff to try to get you to guess the one word. And so, um, we did that and you can watch it on YouTube. It's actually really funny, but she showed it to me. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. She was trying to get me to guess the color, uh, the horse color chestnut. And, (laughs) I was like guessing the wrong ones. And then she took her hand and not not touched, but like, like kind of waved at her chest area. And she goes, what is this? And I was like, uh, you don't want me to say that. (laughs) And, and, uh, I eventually got it right. And I got them all right. And I got like a TVG gift card that I never actually got to use. So, um, but it was, it was really funny and it was fun. It was a fun time. I was really excited about it. Um, I remember I taped it on my DVR and I like saved it from that time and funny enough greg wolf threw it to us which is like kind of funny full circle now that wolfie and i are friends and work together so um it was cool man it was a fun day yeah definitely recommend people looking that up on youtube what did you have to put in the search bar to find that um i think it's like the name of the show was me and you um and like obviously spelt like michelle spells her name um, I don't know if you can just put me and you and it shows up me and you No, that's some like pop song me and you Kenshin. Um, and that's not it. Last chance. If you just put Michelle's last name and my last name, that doesn't work either. I don't know. It's on there somewhere. It's definitely, it's, it's in the mix somewhere. I, I don't remember exactly where it's at, 
but it's out there somewhere in the interwebs. For our expert cyber stalkers, I'm sure you can find it. <laughs> and of course, Michelle Yu is now a part of the In The Money media network. So in a way that came full circle as well. Yeah, yeah. She, um, you know, with, with Billy and, and Michelle, they had had some, they'd been working on their uh, podcast. I think it was called the the Owner Experience previously. And they had reached out about, you know, getting involved and joining the network. And, and you know, we're obviously looking for, for content. Our, our, our goal is to just kind of have something for everyone. And, and so, you know, obviously Billy does a phenomenal job. Michelle does a phenomenal job. And we really liked the angle that they were tackling. We don't really get to highlight and get in depth with owners. Now, obviously in JK plus one, I'll have an owner every now and again and talk to them like Marshall Graham or Joe Applebaum or, or whoever, but they are going to be doing it every week, focusing on that. So it's, it's been good. And, and we're, we're, uh, we're really happy about that. It definitely has been uh, quite the brand. Like I said before, before I let you go, this was a question that actually I thought was quite interesting. It's titled CEO JK. How about this scenario? You get to take over a leadership position for a month at any company within horse racing. Which one would it be? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I'm going to go racetrack operator, but before I tell you my racetrack operator things, um, if I was in charge of of like, you know, the jockey club or whatever, one of the things I would definitely do is give basic free information. Um, now, as it comes to like a racetrack operator, one initiative I've always thought would be kind of cool is to charge $20 admission to get into a racetrack, but in, but give them a $20 voucher in return. So essentially it's, it's 20 bucks to get in but you're getting the $20 back. And I don't care if, if a guy who gets the, or a gal who gets the $20 and goes to the window and cashes it, whatever, I don't care, but give them the opportunity to get that thrill that they might otherwise be scared to get, give them that thrill. Um, the other thing that I would do is shorten post time. Like I wouldn't have 25 minutes in between races. I don't think it's necessary. Obviously it's a quick turnaround for horsemen, but I think we could be, we could tighten the gap. It doesn't have to be 25 minutes. All the wagering money comes in in the last 30 seconds minute anyways. So what are we doing for the other 24 minutes? Do you think that would um, be like logistically difficult in terms of like horses being in the pre-parade than the parade ring? Oh, actually, that's more of a European thing, the pre-parade ring. We just have a parade ring, like the paddock kind of thing, and then go out to track and then go to post. Or do you think that would still work in terms of getting the horses to come up? Because a lot of tracks, horses walk up on the track. So you would kind of have to make that work, right? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously that, that would be a, a, a horseman conversation, but... I think it could happen quicker than it happens. Hmm. Um, I don't think that you necessarily have to have the 25 minutes, but what, what do I, you know, that's one thing. The other thing is, is that, you know, people go to casinos to have fun, to gamble a little bit, a little bit of risk and to be able to, uh, you know, have a couple of drinks and have fun. And I think that we should find a way to, 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 you know, I, 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 you know, legally there's some issues you have to work through obviously, but I think having like cheap keg beer, you know, Keystone or natural light or just whatever cheap keg beer that people can turn in losing tickets and get a solo cup of a free beer. Let college kids come have fun, hang out, 
you know, bet a couple bucks here. I don't care if they pick tickets up off the ground, but make it a, a, a more fun environment where people can kind of go out and have a, a day at the track and, and not feel like they're, they're spending $200 before they even make a wager. Cause that's how I feel sometimes at racetracks, you know, um, it, it can be that way. I remember you discussing that with Aiden Butler as well. The idea of like the bears for a losing ticket kind of thing. And I'm sure that there are uh, logistical and legal challenges to that as well. But the idea itself is good to allow people to perhaps not spend as much when they're at the racetrack and make it a, a bit more affordable, like the day out that it is. And it can be JK. We've gone on for a good while. I feel like, Personally, and I hope as well the listeners have gotten to know you better in, in a different light, seen a different side to you than we normally see when you're on the, the main shows. And uh, I had a fair bit of fun. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'd say you've learned a thing or two you didn't know before about the regular host and co-creator of the In The Money Media Network. Bet you're glad you tune in. And I'm glad I got my MacBook working again as it wasn't charging before, causing a minor panic attack on my part, as I was wondering if the old dinosaur finally gave up on me. Thankfully, a trip to Best Buy and a new charger was just what the doctor ordered. Whilst you're at it, take a sneak peek at some of the other shows after this one. Plenty to choose from on the In The Money Media feed. Also, make sure to subscribe to the main feed, as well as to talk racing to me. Happy Thursday, Friday, Saturday, whatever day you're listening and catch you again next week.